starting recording and now this is organ on a chip part one we should start with some big organ music Dodie, today I want to talk small. Alrighty, how small? I mean, we've done quantum biology before, so are we going subatomic? Okay, no, sorry, not that small. I'm talking about organ-on-a-chip technology. We're going to take a really close look at how we can simulate organs on a scale that means really big returns for developing safe therapies. Okay, so it is organ-on-a-chip technology that matters on today's episode of Discovery Matters. Today's episode, we start with an old friend and colleague, Jan Turner. She used to work with us, but at the time of her interview, was at Safer Medicines Trust, which is a charity focused on patient safety. She spoke to us about organ-on-a-chip technology and why it might be a safer avenue for testing new drugs. What this really is, is sort of miniature models of organs on on chips, on chips that were originally coming out of bioengineering uh, or engineering industry. And, and they've been developed so that you can put human cells into small channels on these chips. So these, these chips are probably about the size of a USB device, you know, that you plug into your computer. They're not, not, not huge, but you can line channels within the chips with human cells. And what you can also do is put fluidics through it. So you can put culture medium or even, you know, in some cases, maybe blood-like medium to recreate what would happen in a, a normal organ system. And you can also then read, obviously, responses from it. These chips allow us to delve so much deeper into the biology of cellular mechanisms and the interplay between drugs and the different cell and tissue types. Okay, so are you saying that drug development researchers can find out through a tiny simulation what the response of these cells or tissues would be to certain drugs? That's, that's exactly right. So researchers can build 3D models of tissues. They call them organoids even. Um, some are called organites. And these, and they build them on chip, and they're much more efficient in comparison to the old traditional 2D layers of cells on culture chips um, that people ah. are more familiar with today. Okay, so could this be a way to replace animal testing? Yeah, you're, you're right, it could be. And, and in some cases it is. In human medicine, animal testing is not very effective, or it's not a, it's not a great simulation of a human. Um, so we should phase out animal testing if we can, not because we love the bunnies, but because it's not as effective uh, a model of, of a human being. There's real limitations to it. In the UK, nearly three million animals are used every year. Half of those are used for testing, either in basic research or in regulated preclinical testing. But the main issue, I think, really is translating any responses you see in mice, rats, even dogs, into what that means in terms of humans. So, you know, we've probably cured cancer in mice 30 times, you know, um, but we haven't cured it in humans. And that's the difference is the way diseases form in animals is different to humans. We can't recreate things like cognitive responses in rats who don't have a pre 
frontal cortex like we do. So, you know, diseases like Alzheimer's and things like that are very difficult to recreate in a mouse model. And so anything I think that can use human tissues, human organs, human cells is going to give us an advantage really as to what we have already. Curing cancer in mice 30 times over kind of highlights that we're limiting ourselves. So how does it help humans to focus on finding ways to cure cancer in mice? Testing in humans presents greater danger. The long-term patient impact is that if we test on a platform with human cells, then patients won't suffer if things go wrong. So let's look at the example of Vioxx, um, upwards of 100,000 deaths around a drug that was actually approved through animal model uh, and clinical trials. In the UK, I think we have around 10,000 deaths from adverse drug reactions and the costs to, you know, to the NHS and likewise in the US. I think the other piece with these models as well is that you know, we know uh, statistically that drug development is very inefficient. Around 90%, 95% of drugs actually don't make the market. And I think what these systems can do is improve that efficiency and therefore increase, you know, the productivity of, of pharma and um, emulate based on that data that they, I just mentioned. They've actually been able to show that um, you could increase pharma productivity by about $3 billion per annum by using these chips. So, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a, a financial cost, but there's also, you know, human costs that can be addressed using these types of technologies. Okay, so 90 to 95% of drugs don't make the market, that's huge. That's exactly right. And using an organoid, you're testing how we respond to the external inputs, right? Whether it's a potential drug or a treatment. And you wouldn't have to be concerned with the if this works for mice. Then we can start thinking about tailoring it to a human. You've actually tested it on human tissues, on human cells. It should save time, it should save resources, and ultimately it should save lives. I think that's the beauty of it. I mean, you can actually look at the biology of that system in vitro outside the body. And so you can see the mechanisms, you can investigate the mechanisms that are taking place. But then that also gives you an understanding of the mode of action of maybe a, a drug causing some toxicity. And therefore, you can then use the same model, really, to test a drug or to test a potential treatment. So really, we are removing a lot of that difficulty, I guess, you know, and, and, you know, we know that so many drugs go onto the market that cause adverse drug reactions and things like that. I mean, that's what's close to my heart in terms of my role. And we need to stop that, you know, this, this it's, it's not great by any means. And we need to be able to do something about that and continuing to use animal models, I don't think is really helping there. Whereas if we can move to a, a more human model, then hopefully we can start to pick up these sorts of reactions that are human relevant rather than animal relevant. I wonder, has there been an instance when the animal model did not pick something up? Yeah, so Jan mentioned a study that reviewed drugs developed through animal models, and the results are really troubling. 
There's actually just been a, a publication posted on a, a preprint survey from a company called Emulate. So these this company is in has come out of the Vice Institute in Harvard, and they've just produced a paper looking at 780 liver chips. And they've looked at liver tox compounds, hepatotoxic compounds, 27, I think they tested. So these are uh, compounds, drugs that have gone through animal models and have proven to be toxic in the human when they've reached the market. And they've taken those 27 compounds and put them through these 780 liver chips. And in terms of sensitivity and specificity, they've been able to get numbers around you know, sensitivity of 80%, which is, can actually be increased to about 87% when you take account of protein binding, and a specificity of 100%. So what that means is they've been able to really show which compounds were toxic in these models, which is incredible. Whereas, you know, animal models, we're probably talking about 70% sensitivity, specificity, depending on the model. So this is just really a really powerful technology and something that's really exciting is to, in terms of what we can do in terms of preclinical testing and, and removing, you know, the costs, be it, you know, human costs or, or monetary costs from putting drugs out there that, that are going to cause toxicity. So that's pretty shocking. It, I, it drives home the importance of a move away from animal testing. But also the interplay of different organs in their response to drugs is another factor that we just can't ignore. Well, there have been developments since 2010 around including immune cells on organoids to view an immune response effect and so on. But there's obviously no animal or human as a whole organism with cognitive responses that you can build on a chip. So there's limitations there. But the chips can include immune cells. They can include hormonal responses. They can even include, ha the microbiome. microbiome. Uh, so all right. <laughs> now that contain all sorts of human models. Well, so we've come around to another one of your favorite topics, Connor. If it couldn't be mushrooms, yep. at least let it be the microbiome. Totally guilty. Okay. So we're starting to understand the influence of the microbiome and how we metabolize drugs, their impact on the body. But Jan is saying there are limitations. There are also other limitations that are inherent with any cell culture, you know, the, the stability of the cells, the reproducibility of the cells, things like that, that we need to consider. There's numerous groups and actually these microphysiological systems or organon chips and they bring the developers, they bring the pharma groups, they bring the regulators together to really look at these chips and understand the criteria for using them and, and the robustness and reproducibility. The other thing to think about, I think, is that there's an also a lot of computational power that goes behind these as well. And machine learning stuff that, that's coming through now can also be applied to these chips. So you can actually look at pharmacokinetics, so drug metabolism and things like that, and recreate that using the data from the chip and, and translating that into what would happen in the human using computational methods. So it's not just the biology on its own, you know, there's the in silico piece as well, the, the computational piece as well, which is almost bridging that gap as well between maybe those more advanced mechanisms that take place in the human. 
So organs on the chip have real potential in the steps before drugs enter into clinical trials. I mean, for me, I think I would love to see these be, be used more regularly in preclinical testing. You know, I think they do offer a huge opportunity, but I do think there's a lot of education that needs to take place, be it with regulators or be it even with people who are issuing grants to people to use these technologies. There's a lot more understanding needed there in terms of education, but I really do think there's a huge potential in terms of moving away from animal models and, and coming up with more human relevant approaches. That fusion of the engineering, the cell biology is, is all coming together at the right time. The stem cell piece is really allowing us to have you know, continuous cultures of these cells that are human relevant and, and not altered in any way in terms of the genetics. So I think it's a really powerful technology and I really hope that we can include this more in preclinical testing because I think it's going to offer us a whole lot more in terms of productivity and treatments for humans going forward. Okay, we need to keep talking about this because I feel like we've just scratched the teeny tiny surface of this topic. Next week, we'll have a part two on organ on a chip technology. And we'll be talking to Professor Alice White and Christos Mikas on their use of this technology to tackle cardiac arrest. Our executive producers, Andrea Killen. This podcast is produced with all the work by Bethany Grace Armit Brewster, editing, mixing, and music by Tom Henley and Banda Productions. Coming to you live is Dodie Axelson and... I'm Connor McKechnie. Um, I have organs with my chips. Um, make sure you rate us on Spotify or whichever platform you use. If you are listening on Spotify, please answer the poll under the episode description. It helps us get a better episode next time. We'll see you when we come back with another one on Discovery Matters. Thank you.